Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, uh, hello and welcome to uh, Objection to the Rule live from Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Violet Barron, here in the studio with uh, host Max Carter. Hey, Max. How are we doing today? Good. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Good. Just finally getting some sun in the city. Yeah, nice. And uh, we have a phone-in guest today who will announce their presence when they are on. Uh, do we have a phone-in guest yet? Not yet. All right. We will uh, We will await their arrival. But uh, today we've got a, a cool show coming up for you. Um, first off, we're going to hear what's happening at Hampshire College and what that means for experiments in progressive higher ed going forward. And we'll also talk mass shootings in New Zealand, uh, a possible end to the Mueller probe. And uh, we're going to try a new space on climate change and how it affects our daily lives. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, so, uh, how's it going, Max? How's your week been? Uh, my week's been pretty good. Uh, as I said, finally getting some sun. It's so nice. It really just yeah. like brings me back to life it after does. a long winter. Yeah. Yeah, How about for you? Sure. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been pretty good. You know, I'm like enjoying the longer days, you know, like more sunlight, more daytime is good for me. And, uh, yeah, um, you were, so you were away last week, uh. I was away uh, visiting other parts of this large, large country nice. that is so hard to explore in one's small lifetime. Um, yeah, visiting visiting friends and family and loved ones. So uh, back in Chicago for a little bit, which is a city that I love, but mm -hmm. am not uh, sad about um, leaving during the winter. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. For sure. Um, so, uh, let's get into it. Um, Max, you did some reporting for us this week on a national story that's sort of close to home for you. Yeah, uh, my alma mater, Hampshire College, has been struggling, um, to find its footing, uh, in what is turning into, uh, quite a confusing, um, uh, situation. Uh, students seem to be scrambling to pick up the pieces um, of the school as its own administration uh, is dismantling it. Last month, um, the new president, Miriam Nelson, um, announced that they would not be uh, accepting a freshman class except for early decision and deferred students. Um, and that came on the heels of an announcement that they were looking for a strategic partner, a.k.a. merger, a.k.a. a buyout. Um, and obviously that was alarming to alums, folks who have been out of the community. Uh, but surprisingly enough, it was, uh, in fact, blindsiding to even current students, faculty and staff members. Uh, they um, had no information on how the decisions were being made um, and were not being brought into the process um, insofar as how decisions were being made about uh, what what the solutions would be. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Um, I think we have our call-in as well. Is that right? Yes. Hello. 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 We have Andrew hello. Green on the phone, uh, a Hampshire alum. and um, Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so, yeah, so going back to what you were saying, Max, um, it, it just, from, from slightly outside of the world, it just seemed like such a crazy situation, such a wild situation, because um, 
seemingly out of nowhere, the school, which, you know, like it didn't, maybe it didn't have the biggest endowment or financial backing, but so do so many schools are in that situation. But it was certainly had a huge wide network, you know, uh, like it was just a very established place. It was a place that seemed like a secure and lasting place. Suddenly it's, we're told it's on the rocks. Absolutely. I mean, the school has only been around for uh, just under 50 years. In fact, the 50 year anniversary is coming up uh, around the corner. Um, So the endowment hasn't had a chance to grow to the uh, size of something like a Harvard that's been around since 200 years. Yeah. Um, And uh, that has certainly presented financial struggles for the school. uh, But those are not new. And Mm -hmm. those are something that the school has continued to Uh, overcome with short-term funding uh, programs, whatever it is, they've been able to pull the pieces together. And, uh, And, sorry, there was was really no stressing that, like, I knew when I was there, I knew older alums knew that there was no endowment and that's not ideal, but there was absolutely no information that this was, it was more dire now. Right. Right. And, yeah, um, when you mentioned that, uh, maybe we could step, take a step back. Um, uh, uh, Max, you're you're a recent alum, is that right? What what year were you a graduate? Yeah, I actually just graduated at the end of 2016, so uh-huh. just a few years yeah, ago. Just a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and even in my uh, tenure, I mean, as as Andrew said, I you know, all the students are aware of the fact that Hampshire does not have a lot of money. That it is trying every year to make sure it can meet its bare minimum uh, funding goals. Right. But uh, nowhere along the way uh, was this the proposed, even proposed solution. I mean, the idea of a strategic partner or a buyout was never on the table, a conversation that was happening, at least in public. Right. Um, so now, uh, you know, I'm forced to question how much of this was a discussion that was happening during my time at the school uh, and what does that mean as far as how um, small institutions are being administrated and who should be allowed into those processes? Right. How long was this going on and who was really having this conversation, if not right. the people most affected? Yeah, I was actually curious, uh, Andrew, if you could fill us in on um, what you heard uh, as an alum, uh, part of the community who isn't at the school uh, witnessing firsthand the processes what had you heard about the reasoning administration had been giving um, for their uh, various decisions? And Andrew, if you could just Nothing. say what year you are as well. What, yeah, what yeah sorry. I graduated in 2012, but because of medical leave, most of the time I was there was actually between 2006 and nine. Okay. And um, we were told basically nothing, like, me and all my own classmates were like sharing news articles with each other on Facebook. We, my, my parents knew from the newspaper before I did. Well, that, I mean, that's, that is, sounds like the pretty classic story right. that I've heard from most even staff and faculty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was, uh... and then there was a few people who still have more connections there that had a bit more inside information, but really very little. Yeah, you know, um, there was a a big piece in the nation, which we might uh, get into further a little later on, um, by Maggie Carollo, is that right? Margaret Margaret Cirillo. Cirillo, a a current professor there, uh, a professor for over 40 years, and she said basically she and the current students found out from these articles in the New York Times. 
That was the first mention of this official. Hampshire is not admitting new students this year and is in dire straits. Right. And this coming uh, from a school that prides itself on being very progressive, very, uh, you know, open in governance, um, a, a place that really has been a breeding ground for a lot of uh, very uh, effective activism. Uh, organizing is a constant on the campus. Uh, and so this is somewhat at odds with how the de- how the administration has been handling this situation. You know, it's not new for the administration to um, want to kind of keep things under wraps and right. not reveal information to students. But the fact that this is such an uh, an opaque process and that it turns out folks who were involved at at the board of trustees meetings uh, were forced to sign non-disclosure agreements yeah. uh even the presidents of the other four schools in this consortium that Hampshire is a part of where students can take classes at any of the five schools in the area including Amherst, Mount Holyoke, Smith College and UMass those other schools, which ostensibly, given the nature of the consortium, should be involved in governing decisions, were not uh, filled in at all until, um, you know, they read it in the newspaper or were informed after the articles started rolling in right. uh, of the decision and the and the direction. Right. And yeah, maybe we could um, maybe we can move back one more time and say, like, let's talk a little bit about what Hampshire is and what Hampshire, uh, how it got got there. Um, uh, Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Hampshire College, what Hampshire is? Yeah, Hampshire College has been an experiment. Um, it was an experimental college based in Amherst, Massachusetts. It's a line I... It's like a conversation I know by wrote. Where'd you go to college? Hampshire? New Hampshire? No, in Amherst. Oh, Amherst College. No, but it I was know a it really well. special, amazing school for people to um, create, really create their own education. We didn't have conventional majors. You have a committee. You just, you figure out what you want to study, and you make it happen, whether it's easily available or that or not. And people do, and they've done really amazing things there. Right. And um, I guess the question uh, amidst all this could be, well, how how relevant is this story and how how far does Hampshire really reach? You know, is this is this one of those small liberal arts colleges you hear about in the northeast? Or I know Hampshire has a pretty high percentage of people on uh, financial aid. So it's it tries to be inclusive in that way. Um I think Hampshire is definitely part of a larger wave that we're seeing of smaller colleges uh, facing real financial hardship, trying to navigate a system of higher ed that is increasingly prohibitive in cost. As you mentioned, Hampshire does uh, work really hard to provide financial aid as best they can to those who are in need. Um, But the thing that sets Hampshire apart is that they are a really nationally renowned school. I mean, they have uh, been on the cutting edge of higher ed for a long time as far as pushing the boundaries of what is education and how do we get it and how do we expect people to uh, navigate an educational system. Um, they are a liberal arts program that is, uh, you know, not accepting SAT or ACT scores. They mm-hmm. don't have grades and they, as Andrew was saying, uh, encourage oh, students to to really Um, create their own program of study and develop an undergraduate thesis, uh, which makes the school a much more 
uh, experiential experience. Um, And so losing a place like that, I think, is really different from a small school um, in Boston uh, where, you know, the education is definitely excellent, uh, but doesn't push the boundaries in the same way. Right. Right, right. Because, you know, uh, perhaps even more so now than um, in uh, in recent decades, where you went to school has a lot to do with what, what your future will be and how well prepared you are for a career that will, uh, that will earn you enough money to survive in today's economy. And I think from what I understand about Hampshire, it's... Uh, it, it takes people who wouldn't necessarily be going to Amherst College, you know, one of the most selective colleges in the world, uh, and um, maybe wouldn't necessarily be going to a traditional school because they're highly intelligent people, but they don't, they don't think and behave in the ways that we're sort of taught to from when we're small. So, so it's a way to include more, uh, more perspectives into higher ed. Absolutely. And I think that that often gets misconstrued in terms of thinking of students at Hampshire as, uh, you know, ineffective in traditional environments. And that may be true in a lot of cases. But the other thing that Hampshire really provides is the ability for a student to uh, craft and direct their own course of study. Whereas a, a traditional higher ed experience is very directed constructed and constrictive in a lot of senses, Hampshire allows students the freedom to pursue their passions uh, and really get hands-on with those things. Um, And so I think that, you know, again, that's what we're losing here is the ability to encourage that in folks, to encourage uh, a larger questioning in terms of their education, um, taking it into their own hands and looking at it critically. Uh, from a lot of different perspectives. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. That That's a good point. Um, Max, you had some questions for uh, for conversation about this. Yeah, I mean, my main questions uh, were, were maybe something that Andrew can address um, in terms of uh, whether this is, uh, uh, like, why the school has been so opaque um, and obtuse in the process and also their PR in the backlash. I mean, I don't know how closely you've been following the conversation uh, in and out, Andrew, but if you could give us maybe a little bit of insight into um, not just how you heard about the process, but the various reasons that were given as far as why the administration was making these decisions, what has been the student response as well? um, And what do you see as the possibilities going forward for the school? Well, I, I could speak more to the alumni response than the student response, and there's been a really big divide between, I mean, so many people really love it, and there, there were a lot of alumni who, as soon as they saw there were crisis, were, like, pushing in every form of social media to get everyone who's ever both been to Hampshire, taken a class from the other schools to, like, give and save it, because it's so important. But, and I wish... Part of me wishes maybe I wasn't such a pessimist and I could have gotten behind that. But the other side of the divide is how can we trust like that the money is going to be used well? Right. Like, I'd find a way to donate to save the professors and the future class, absolutely. But, like, some... And I don't know if it speaks to, in terms of the administration and how, like, how you can even find a proper one. 
because I know the president, most of the time I was there, Ralph Hexter was, it was never transparent. It was the way the college was run was never up to the ideals of the student body and the philosophy. And I don't know how to make that, but it's finally come to a point. But like I was saying, the president, most of the time I was there was removed under threat of a vote of no confidence. And, I don't know how the relationship with the administration was when you were there. Maybe you could speak to that. But it's like now it's finally at this tipping point, but it's never lived up to that. And I don't, is it possible to, I mean, obviously the way it's being run isn't working, but how do you manage that and find something that's transparent and lives up to the ideals of the students? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like those are really uh key and at the heart of the issue, even beyond um, the question of will Hampshire survive, it's a question of under what auspices will it continue, even if it were to survive. And uh, from what I've heard, the students themselves have been rallying and have occupied both the president and the dean of admissions offices for the past over 40 days and are demanding on those grounds that they not only be allowed to be part of the decision-making team uh, with decision-making power and the ability to translate that uh, to the larger community uh, without, you know, being held back from NDA by NDAs or any sort of, uh, you know, non-disclosure clauses. Mm -hmm. Um, They want to be involved in not just the governing in this process, but in the governing of the school in whatever form it might continue. So they're uh, really trying to push for in their organizing uh, activity and for, you know, a larger ideal, um, the ability to uh, make decisions collectively um, in a way that includes administration, faculty, staff, and students. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. And I really hope that happens because I think my main point with that is just that it's not, now is the time it's really becoming its worst problem, but the yeah. cracks between the student populace and administration were there through many rounds of administration and many different incarnate. Like it's been there a long time. That's absolutely true. That's certainly true in my yeah. experience there as well. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, any last thoughts on uh, on what's going on in Hampshire? Uh, this, this will be a story that we're going to follow, uh, in the weeks to come because we're, we're, you know, it's, we're going to, we're all watching it develop over the, this year, uh, before the end of the school year. So. Yeah, I guess as a last thought, I mean, I, I wish all the best to the folks who are, uh, struggling to figure out what this means for their futures, uh, for supporting themselves and their families, um, for navigating education, uh, going forward, um, finding a place that feels safe and comfortable and also open to uh, their creativity and unique selves. Um, I think that it it will be a real tragedy to see Hampshire close. So as you said, I I look forward to continuing to following the story in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, me too. It's the world really needs it. And myself and so many other people have now really needed it. And it'd be so tragic. I hope, I, yeah, my thoughts and prayers with the 
thoughts and prayers. Right. Yeah. 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 Hashtag yeah. thoughts and prayers. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So uh, thank you very much for reporting the story, uh, Max. And thanks for coming on, uh, Andrew. Andrew, you're welcome to stay on after the break. We are having a short break uh, and we'll listen to some tunes and then we'll get into um, the Mueller report at long last and whether we'll actually hear the full story there. Uh, stick with us. Okay. Thank you, Violet. to Objection to the Rule. That was some Afro beats for you. Uh, it was Yanya uh, Kukere. 
Um, and uh, so this week in national news, several clues emerged that the Mueller investigation may be coming to a close after two years, just about. Uh, Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort are effectively released from testimony, while two members of the Mueller team are moving on. Uh, but while the probe may be over, Mueller and, and lawyers for the former Trump campaign age Richard Gates have asked that the judge postpone his sentencing for Gates due to his cooperation in, quote, ongoing investigations, uh, which is a little bit, uh, maybe a little surprising, but also a little bit uh, ominous, yeah, <laughs> potentially. Absolutely. Uh, like, you know, the nation has been watching this Mueller investigation. You know, we've talked about it a lot on the show and um, for years, for two years. And now we're seeing that it's over, but it's not really over. And maybe it's not going to be over for a long time because we know that the New York district attorney is going to follow uh, Michael Cohen and has uh, promised to follow um, Manafort uh, and gave additional sentencing. So we've got local uh, and um, state legislatures on the case. We've got other investigations that are ongoing and we don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's it's been wild to uh, be paying attention to all of the speculation that's going on um, mm-hmm. from every single news source saying we're about to see the Mueller report come to a close. Right. What is it going to mean for the administration? Um, and I think that this Gates stuff uh, is is stirring the pot in another way in that it's saying not only when will we see the the report, but mm-hmm. is there a possible new uh, line of questioning that Mueller is taking? Right. Um, I mean, we've seen a lot of the information come out from the, from Cohen and Manafort, um, but nothing that truly links um, Trump and Russia with collusion. Nothing concrete that feels hard hitting um, in that respect. And Gates seems like a possible um, thread in that. Uh, in that tapestry that might uh, just unweave the entire thing. Right. I think that we were watching Mueller for many of us for a long time thinking, Oh, like here's a new development. Here's a new twist. This is going to be it. You know, this is going to topple the whole house of cards. You know, Trump is going to be uh, revealed uh, to be, you know, unfit for office and he's going to be removed. Um, or some other uh, huge uh, um, person in the administration is going to be removed. But now it's seeming more like, like you're saying, it's a smaller piece, you know? We're going to get small small cogs, small little, uh, little um, you know, uh, trials, and um, it's going to be a long time. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, a lot of this uh, feels like um, it was inevitable. I mean... Even coming into the presidency, so much conversation was happening around how Trump is totally unfit for the office. So these, you know, whatever comes out in the report, I don't think will be, you know, that that shocking thing that's like this is what makes him unfit for office. I think I think there are so many different uh, things that he's overcome in that respect that it makes it hard to believe that any one other thing that comes out is going to, as you say, topple the whole house of cards. Uh, But it is interesting to watch all of these smaller players fall. Um, I mean, I guess for me, it brings up a question of uh, where the power really lies. If all of these people can continue to just cycle out uh, and be replaced, um, 
what does that mean for uh, you know who has the power and what kind of checks exist in our system, especially as we watch the national emergency debate happen. Uh, you know, the powers of the executive are being displayed in a very uh, dramatic way right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure if we still have Andrew on the phone. Do we have Andrew on the phone? I don't think so. All right. Uh, so um, that's true. And um, it's the other thing is... Uh, if this isn't really going to topple anyone in particular, if this is not going to topple um, Trump uh, or um, hello, no, okay. Uh, if this is not going to tro- topple anyone in particular in the administration, is this really about the current administration, or is this about um, uh, the government itself? Is this sort of the government checking itself? Are we sort of seeing changes to our system? I mean, I think we're certainly seeing challenges uh, to um, to what is being revealed as an imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, state at the state level, people are trying to say, whoa, 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 what's going on? How come we can't be involved in, uh, you know, bringing justice where we see it uh, as as needed? Right. Um, you know, I think that it, as as I mentioned, the whole national emergency debate rages on and Trump threatens to veto the Congress's, uh, you know, possible resolution to uh, stop his budget um, and, you know, declare his national emergency unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that uh, that that on a national scale, the checks don't exist in the way that they need to. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that's really what a lot of these smaller state level uh, cases are about is trying to exert uh, some other check uh, where, wherever it may be possible. Yeah. 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 That's a good point because, you know, it's shocking uh, to hear like, Oh, it's possible the, the president committed a crime here, but even if that's the case, it may not be impeachable. Right. So that there's any gap between, uh, you know, an arrestable offense and an impeachable offense. Right. I think that's that's something that's being highlighted. I mean, I think also, uh, you know, as somebody who was who was growing up post the Clinton era, mm-hmm. uh, hearing about this man who was impeached on what is, you know, you know, sort of common knowledge says. Right. You know, very layman's terms, he was he just he he had sexual relations with this woman in the Mm -hmm. office. There was a power imbalance involved and that displayed that he was unfit for the office of president. And so for that to be the model of impeachment uh, as I grew up in the country and then for the discussion around impeachment to become so much more. uh, um precise like uh you know for the level to be raised to such a high bar uh for this guy it 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 is such a it's a shocking uh change of pace yeah for sure yeah um and you know uh we we said that this may not topple trump but i'm curious uh what what it could mean if we have smaller state and local governments uh, pursuing these uh, bits and pieces of the larger case? Um, could this mean 
he is more vulnerable actually because they're less uh, they're less susceptible to an executive power just sort of overruling them. You know, I I am not a legal scholar <laughs> at all, so I I can't say what what actual protections exist or don't right. exist. But I will say I think that as more state level uh, cases are brought, as more state level politicians get involved, uh, I think you'll see a lot more people. Uh, getting involved um, on the ground level. I think that most folks are up to date given the fact that Trump dominates every 24-hour news cycle, every news headline. I mean, people know what's going on. But as these cases sort of trickle down to the state level, uh, I think we'll see a lot more activism um, in local politics, uh, which I think is inevitably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... So we'll watch for that. Um, Meanwhile, the House of Representatives passed a resolution uh, this week that called for the Mueller report to be made public. Uh, A bipartisan vote was zero against. And uh, when Democrats tried to bring this to the Senate, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham stopped up the action with calls for a simultaneous look into the Clinton email investigation. So uh, here we are again. Right, right. So that's that's not going to move forward in the Senate for the time being. Um, and um, so, you know, but it, it's interesting, though, that uh, the House still does have a Republican presence. Um, and I think four Republicans voted present, so they didn't vote for or against, but nobody voted against. That's pretty powerful in the House. Um, so I'm wondering what you think, and I think we do have uh, Andrew back. On the phone. Um, hello. Hello. Uh, hello again, Andrew. <laughs> um, Sorry, I kept getting a busy signal. I think on top of myself when I was trying to call back. That's all right. Um, okay, so uh, how likely are we to actually see the details as the general public of the Mueller report? I mean, I want to be optimistic. Yeah. Uh, I I know that the that Congress, especially the House of Representatives, has said they will subpoena everything possible, Mm -hmm. that they will bring Mueller in front of Congress, that uh, they will do everything in their power to release as much of the information as they possibly can. But I I think that we can expect a real fight um, um, and that uh, we can't expect to see everything quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't know, however, how how long um, of a process that will be as far as, uh, you know, when we see the end of the actual investigation to when uh, we see even the first page of any part of the report. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It should be interesting, though. I mean, I I think that it's it's going to uh, bring in a lot of conversations that have been hot hot topics for the past few years as far as, uh, you know, freedom of information and. Uh, who has access to what, um, you know, going back to the Hampshire question, in the administration of an institution or a country, how much do constituents have a right to know and be involved in the process of uh, making decisions? Right. How much of the national welfare goes on behind closed doors? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I think that we will see a, 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 some amount of it. I think we may not see the whole thing, uh, but I think that, as you said, a fight will be put up, and I think that we will see something of the Mueller report. Um, and uh, I'm curious, this is a question for everyone, um, even if we could see it, what what is the Mueller report likely to say at this point? You know, What's it likely to say and what's it likely to change? <laughs> 
Um, Andrew, maybe you have an qu- uh, answer here. I heard that sigh. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's more constant wondering than an answer because, I mean, I wanted to say something damning, but it, it's hard to even imagine what, like, there's so much we know about Trump that seems like it should be damning. It's hard to even imagine what it could say at this point. Right. That would be a shock. Right. Like, when I try to imagine it, as much as I hate to say it, the only thing I could think that would actually turn people who aren't against him against him is if it was some sort of pressuring for abortion or something, we'd actually, like, we'd actually not want to be considered very bad. Right. Oh, I see. You mean the Republicans could turn against him for something that went against him? Yeah, like, I feel like anything that damns him for us, we know already. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point that yeah. maybe the most effective thing to uh, if if anything were to be revealed in the report would be something that would uh, move him away from his base. Mm-hmm. I mean, even more right. effective than uh, any sort of evidence that he was colluding with Russia. I think if he were to if something were to be revealed that he did something that. Uh, really hurts his messaging and hurts his relationship with his base. That's going to be the most impactful thing that would come out of the report. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And I, you know, I think that if we're in a situation where Mueller report is finished, it's complete, it's delivered to Congress, you know, and um, it's uh, not going to be revealed. And then, you know, for freedom of information wins out, it's revealed. Um, it's probably not going to change that much at that point, you know? I mean, more public pressure, certainly, but it's not going to have revealed uh, impeachable offenses, Yeah, right? I mean, we'll see, but uh, I think, I think you know, as we were saying, this is really going to put a test uh, to um, the idea of uh, what who's in, who is entitled to what information. I think especially, you know, given in, in light of... Um, Chelsea Manning being returned to prison just last week. I think that uh, the idea of who has the right to what information uh, is a discussion that is paramount to our uh, society right now. Um, I think it's being played out in many ways. And I think the Mueller report is just another uh, form of that conversation. You know, who has access to what information and you know, who doesn't? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point about the uh, Chelsea Manning because it's uh, it's either not a good time or a very important time for freedom. Of right. right <laughs> yeah. So uh, so we'll watch that happen. Uh, now we're going to pilot a new uh, super quick segment called Toast. You can time me. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do this for five minutes uh, and we're calling it Toast because uh, the idea is if we don't all take steps to reduce global warming now. We will all be toast. So, new segment called Toast. Uh, <laughs> no shade to all you toast lovers out yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, this was inspired in part. Um, New York Times and I think a few other uh, publications have a column dedicated to everyday ways we can reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, and I thought we could give it a show on OTR. So, um, here are, there are ways that we know we can all make small changes daily, weekly, monthly to reduce climate change and collectively change course uh, in some way. Uh, so we, we're all familiar, drive less, drive electric, buy locally sourced things, especially food, to lower emissions from transporting their goods, uh, and try to limit limit our own waste, uh, because uh, everything that we throw out that goes into a landfill 
uh, causes its own pollution um, in the form of emissions. Um, but that all sounds a little bit abstract, right? Um, does it have anything to do with us as people and the choices that like you and I, the three of us, actually make? Um, some ways that it could, uh, the food we buy versus the food we use, uh, 40% of food from private homes ends up in the garbage. You know, like I'll buy something for the week, uh, think I'm going to use it, I'm out half of the week, and then the food is wasted. Uh, the clothes we buy and we buy and we buy, it's very Marie Kondo uh, today. Uh, but there's a statistic on average that each of us throws out 81 pounds of clothing each year if we don't just let them clog up our closets. You know, at the end of uh, the tidying up Netflix show with Marie Kondo, uh, her charges throw out all of their clothes and we don't really know where they go. You know, so that's wasteful in itself. Uh, and the one that was surprising to me was uh, replacing our phones before they're it's really time for them to go you know you're ready for your new phone it's come out uh, your insurance is ready to pay for your new phone um, and um, but each cell phone requires a huge amount of natural resources uh, uh, to build and it's not necessarily a sustainable process um, so I'm curious what we all think about this uh, is this doable is this just sort of it's sort of a first world conversation is a shaming people who don't really have that much choice in what they buy, where they source it from, how much they use of it, you know. Um, and uh, is this is this something that like actually has effect on our lives? You know, we're New Yorkers. We don't really drive that much. Um, so what do you guys think? Is this a relevant conversation for us? I mean, I think it's relevant. Definitely. I think it's a conversation that's necessary to be having how do we deal with the biggest crisis in our lives mm -hmm. i mean i don't think that there's going to be anything more pressing than this uh in the next 50 yeah. years you know i mean this is only going to become more of a problem uh, right. as the years go on but personally i have qualms about the uh, rhetoric around individual responsibility mm -hmm. um, yeah. when it comes to climate change. I think that, yes, it is important to recycle. It is cool to compost. Mm -hmm. It is hip to, uh, you know, buy thrift right. uh, clothes. I support all of those things. I think the onus is really on corporations yeah. and governments to uh, start changing the conversation and the culture around production. Right. Um, I think that that is also something that's not new to the conversation. This uh, attempt by large uh, sources, including the New York Times and, mm -hmm. you know, these these sort of uh, for-profit in the end um, corporations that um, have investment from co corporations that uh, you know, are in the business of destroying the environment right. for, you know, in, in very direct terms. Um, and they, uh, you know, benefit from encouraging these sort of small individual responsibility changes right. rather than pushing for the larger uh uh, cultural shifts that are going to actually be required. Yeah, so. I think that's a great point. Yeah. That, that's that's probably that's what I was that I had not put my finger on it, but you have like, you know, a company like two paper towel companies are going to push paper towels on people, and then they're going to say, "Be kind, recycle." You can recycle the tube yeah. in the middle. Did you know right. that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Or the plastic yeah. that we and make to package it is right. recyclable. Right. And recycle. Yes. Recycling yeah, is great. And I mean, 
recycling's worth doing, and we should certainly do it with what we have, but there really are limits to how effective it is. And it's prohibitively expensive for a lot of companies to even use the recycled materials if yeah. they can. Right. So there needs to be less, like, there's a limit to what we can do if there's so much plastic out there and being sold. And I don't know, maybe some of us have the privilege to, like, move to the woods and use, just not use any plastic, but that still leaves most of humanity in a position where they don't have much choice. Yeah. Right. So if we could reframe this a little bit, I mean, like, sure, there's something we can all do that's fine, but, like, it, away from individual responsibility and more towards um, who's actually responsible, what what might a conversation look like? Like, what, what could we be vi- visiting if we gave this a spot? I mean, I think that uh, something that is really important to address is corporate responsibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a large conversation happening around uh, greenwashing. Uh, a, a company's um, uh, strategy to paint over their negative externalities, the negative mm-hmm. impacts they have on the environment by developing programs and rhetorics that uh, make it seem like they are making up for or you know doing good things for the environment in mm-hmm. other ways. Like uh, for... You know, I, I don't have an example off yeah, the top no, of my head, sure. but it's classic for for a company that's in oil to uh, invest a small portion of their profits right. in some kind of green energy initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, that Exxon doesn't, Mobil does right, a lot of that. that yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that right. happens all the time. And I think that having a conversation with people about uh, the, the corporate responsibility um, and the ways in which they see corporations uh you know having negative impacts in their lives and in their communities while having these larger conversations you know above everyone's head about right. how they're they're actually good for the environment i don't know exactly how that yeah. would come out but yeah yeah for sure well even i don't know if it's still the conversation i'm a few years older than both of you but when i was growing up there was lots of talk about pressuring companies to be carbon neutral and offset their production. But that's just, like, that whole idea is they're, they're still using the same amount of resources and creating the same pollution, but then they're just paying someone else not to. Right. And I guess that's better than not doing that, but I don't know. Someone actually has to not be creating the same pollution. Right. 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 Um. Right. Okay. So I promised you five minutes and I think we went a little bit over, but um, we're going to take another short break uh, and then we're going to talk about the uh, tragedy in New Zealand um, and uh, how Hudson Yards could change New York City. So uh, stay tuned.
get down ha. Them want hold me for ransom Cause I'm young and I'm rich and I'm handsome Them want know where I come from All the run from Lagos to London All the blessings and love are the sea Just they make me they shout hallelujah I say all the blessings and love are the sea Just they make me they shout hallelujah They hold me for ransom Cause I'm young and I'm rich and I'm handsome They want hold me for ransom Cause I'm young and I'm rich and I'm handsome Oh yeah shake body Oh yeah move body a Nigerian artist with Shake Buddy. Uh, he'll hold me for ransom because I'm young and I'm rich and I'm handsome. Uh, gotta love that line. Okay, uh, so in world news this week, um, uh, a gunman shot and killed 49 people at two mosque services in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, while streaming the massacre on Facebook Live via camera on his person. Uh, the attack also injured many worshippers, including small kids, Uh the attacker released a manifesto online which proclaimed allegiance to white nationalist ideals and said he used guns to his he chose guns as his weapon to rile up the US controversy over the second amendment so uh so much going on here uh and it's all awful it's like yeah. horrible um tragedy and it's it's something maybe we in the United States are are getting accustomed to um unfortunately, unfortunately yeah, yeah. Uh, although it's a scale that's um, larger than many we've seen. Um, and it's on the other side of the world, uh, in a place that we're not used to seeing uh, real gun uh, controversy or gun violence. Um, so uh, do we think that this is a singular tragedy, or do we think that this is something that might not be unique to the United States moving forward? I mean, I, I hope it's a singular tragedy, but yeah. I think realistically it's not. I think that, um, you know, the gunman himself said it. He's 
feeling emboldened by the things that are going on in the world, the trends in the U.S. especially, uh, and he wants to encourage that uh, elsewhere. Um, I don't know if Australia will see more attacks like this, but um, they decided to uh, shut down all mosques on Friday and ask people not to attend services out of fear that there could be another attack there. Uh, And I think that regardless of whether one does happen in Christchurch, New Zealand or elsewhere in New Zealand, it will be happening in the rest of the world um, until the conversation is really met with uh, the uh, care that it needs to be here in the U.S., where the the flow, you know, it's sort of flowing from this country. Right, right. Uh, Andrew, did you have any thoughts on this? No, it's horrible. I, I'm sorry. I wish I had something insightful to say, but it's just horrible and... I don't know. It's such a complicated situation because I get how not the attacker, that's just pure evil, but the, the Muslims who are then being told, like, don't come in and pray. And I've heard some responses from them, like, this is when we need to come together and pray more forever. Right. You want the safety and to keep them safe. But imagine the government telling you don't practice your religion. And right. it's probably the best possible excuse for that, but it's still that. Yeah. Right. In a way, it's sort of letting the attacker uh, win, uh, win by uh, congregating less because of that. Yeah. And I and, think, yeah, go ahead, Andrew. And in terms of that, like, it's almost such a cliche to say let the attacker win. You don't really think about it, but it really is like treating, it's people who aren't Muslim treating this as an inessential thing. Like, prayer is not that important. We can shut it down and focus on the important things. But, that's not, well, and maybe for some people that's the case, but it really isn't for the case of a lot of religious people. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a good point. And, uh, you know, on a broader note, I think that what this really is about is a conversation around uh, who has the right to violence and who has uh, the right the right to the narrative around violence. I mean... You know, these were white guys who were proclaiming uh, very extremist um, views um, and have been dubbed generally as terrorists. But, you know, still the news story that comes out um, on a prominent New Zealand paper is angelic young boy turns into right wing extremist killer. Right. And so that narrative that's allowed uh, to to white folks who commit such uh, horrendous violent acts um, is not extended to other people who uh, are human and have um, you know gone have have done such horrible things um, or even have been accused of or caught up in such uh, events um, and so you know the conversation uh, gets even hotter when as a result of this attack uh, a New Zealand senator, was blaming Islamic extremists who had migrated to New Zealand for, uh, you know, causing this guy to go out and shoot up mosques. And it's like, how is that possibly the conversation? I want to ask myself that, but I find myself being like, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised at all that this guy is saying this, given the fact that Ilhan Omar is coming under attack for... You know, really challenging. Apex. Yeah. Right. So, 
I think it's revealing of a couple larger conversations uh, that aren't getting the attention they deserve around Islamophobia and uh, who has the right to violence and narratives around them. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, And I was wondering, you know, I'm sure it's too early to really know this, um, and it could very well be a singular attack uh, in New Zealand. It's a different culture, but... um, uh, it was hard to imagine when it first emerged in the U.S., but um, do we see a similar uh, sort of argument that, well, you never know who or when is going to attack. We need guns to protect us. Uh, could that be something we're seeing in other parts of the world as well? I mean, certainly. I, I don't know what New Zealand's gun laws are like or what the general response is as far as arming the population and protecting everybody. Um, but I, I think it is definitely um, something that will come up uh, as far as who's who are we protecting and from who. Um, I, I think it's a conversation that's already happening. Uh, right. And I know that New Zealand struggles with a lot of Uh, racism towards their indigenous populations. Uh, And I think that we're going to see a similar, um, you know, resistance to uh, folks migrating to the country. I think we're going to see a lot of um, xenophobia. uh, xenophobia. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, right, right. Um, Yeah. I, you know, I'm not sure if we could really see us quite the same thing over there because it's not necessarily the same kind of frontiersman don't tread on me ideology right. that we've got here. You know, it's not, it's not quite the same, although they did have, you know, colonization and, yeah. uh, well, I know, frontiersmanship. so I don't know. And I don't really know anything about New Zealand's gun culture, but I know Australia is often hold, held up as an example of a country that did sort of have that similar right. culture and frontiersman's vibe to the United States and managed to implement, at least to some extent, implement Strict gun laws. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right. We're just about out of time uh, this week for objection to the rule. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, up next, we've got um, we've got What is Love with Sasha Sugar. And uh, you can always listen to us on uh, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or from the Radio Free Brooklyn mobile app. Uh, and there's lots of uh, shows for you to listen to. You can check out our archive shows on uh, the Potomatic mobile app or potomatic.com and we'll see you next week thank you for listening signing off have a good week thanks andrew have a good week thank you Equilibre, 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 equilibre. Parro de mar. Voy a shake body, 